0: This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Take your copy of God's Word, if you would, and turn with me to Psalm 41. Psalm 41, as we continue walking through the book of Psalms, I just want to continue to encourage you, if it is not in your habit to bring a copy of God's word, I want to ask you to do so. I have nothing of any value to share with you that is not right here. So uh, my responsibility is to pray through this, to study this well, and make sure what I'm bringing you is what this says. That's all. And so uh, I want to encourage you to bring a copy of God's word, if you would, each week and follow along with us as we're in Psalm 41 this morning. Now, it's going to take me a moment to get to Psalm 41 because I want to set the stage in the background on why Psalm 41 matters so much for us. It is hard for us to imagine the surprise, the shock, I think you could even say the scandal of Jesus choosing Matthew as a disciple. The Jews in the first century were under the oppressive rule of the Romans and one of the practical ways in which the Romans abused the Jews is through collecting taxes. Now, no one likes the collecting of taxes but in this situation it was even more difficult at some ways, some ways it was much less difficult because there was no forms to fill out, uh, there were no standard deductions, no kind of deductions whatsoever, didn't matter how many kids you had, none of that stuff mattered. What was gonna happen is that someday during the year you were gonna get a knock on the door He was going to be a tax collector, and he was going to say, this is how much you owe. And it didn't matter what he said. Whatever he said, you had to pay, and you couldn't argue to defend yourself. You just paid it. Now, the worst thing about Matthew is not only was he a tax collector, he was a Jew. Now, imagine that, because the Romans oppressed the Jews by taking taxes. So what Matthew decided to do is, as a Jew, to side with the Romans in abusing his own people. And everything for Jews were tied up in their nationalism. Their whole identity was in who they were as the Jewish people. So to betray that was to betray everything you are as a person. Matthew was a traitor. But he wasn't only a traitor, he was also a crook. That's because the way in which tax collectors were paid is what is any salary for tax collectors. They just took a little extra at every door they went to. So it might have said on the piece of paper that this house owes $100, but the tax collector would knock on the door and say you owe $200. Now you didn't know it was on the paper and you may think you owe $200 and there's nothing you could do about it. What you may not have fully realized is that extra $100 went to Matthew. And tax collectors made a good living. We know this from the story of Zacchaeus. And so here's tax collectors living in a nice neighborhood, joining the country club, and particularly a Jewish tax collector experiencing all of the benefits of life really living well, and every bit of his income is coming from exploiting his own people. As a Jew, Matthew would be a hard guy to like, a really hard guy to love. So why in the world would, would Jesus, as he's walking past Matthew's office, stop and invite him to be one of his followers? Well, one of the reasons we know is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, It tells us there that Jesus intentionally chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He specifically chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, Meaning specifically, that Jesus came into a situation in which there were many religious leaders who felt as if they were wise and felt if they were strong. Jesus, in order to show them who they really were, chose the weak and the foolish things to confound their strength and wisdom. And that's exactly how it played out with Matthew. Because in Matthew 9, Matthew comes to follow Jesus. He then invites all of his tax collector friends to a party, and Jesus is there. And it's not a party where Jesus feels uncomfortable and he's standing over in the corner while everyone else is doing whatever sinners and tax collectors do. No, Jesus was right in the middle. It says he was reclining with them, meaning he was at home there. He was laying down at a table while everyone else was reclining. They were eating and feasting together. And here are the religious leaders off to the side doing what kind of religious, church-going, passive-aggressive people do They didn't talk to Jesus about how they were grumbling. They talked about Jesus. Anyone ever experienced this in the church? So instead of saying, Jesus, why are you doing this? They go to the disciples and say, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Well, Jesus confronting passive aggressive behavior, which is what he often does, says, well, let me tell you why. And then in Matthew 9, 12 through 13, he says this, because those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, so Jesus acknowledges that the tax collectors were sick people. They were. I mean, traitors, crooks, they were sick people. Jesus acknowledges that. They agree on that, but what they don't understand is that Jesus came for sick people. That this is exactly the reason Jesus came to eat, to recline with the tax collectors and sinners. And then Jesus says this to the disciple, to the Pharisees: Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, if you were on the, uh, the kind of school, school playground and you were having a cut down fight, you might know what I'm talking about? And you were saying, well, you're mom of this and you're mom of this. Well, my daddy and your daddy, you know, you're, and, and you were trying to cut someone down as low as you could possibly get. Like you, you won. You said the ultimate thing, they're as low as you could possibly get and everybody just knows it's done. Let's just back off. This is what Jesus did in this moment to the Pharisees. If this was a cut down fight, Jesus just won. Drop the mic, it's over. Because Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, those who had prided themselves in their knowledge of the law, their study of the law. They believe no one understands the law more than they do. Jesus says this to them. Why don't you go and learn something from the Old Testament? Specifically, why don't you go to Hosea chapter six and learn what it means when I say that I desire mercy and not just a sacrifice. He's saying that in all of your reading of the law, in all of your study of the law, you've missed something that you need to go back and learn. And what he's saying is this, that in the midst of learning all that I expect, you have missed my heart, the Lord says. we talked about this in our service last Wednesday night. How easy is it for us as believers to read the scripture, to say, God, what do you want me to do today? What do you expect? We then walk in that, we serve, we sacrifice, and at the same time reading over and over and missing God himself. They knew everything that was expected. They had a lot of pride in their strength and ability to obey the law, but they had missed mercy. What Jesus says to them is this, all of your knowledge and all of your sacrifice without mercy means absolutely nothing. What does he mean when he says go understand mercy? Well, mercy is compassion. I think you can best understand mercy with three words. Mercy is to see, mercy is to feel, and mercy is to act. You really need all three of those words to understand mercy. Mercy is to see someone, and not just see that they exist and that they are there, but to see them as an image bearer of God, to see beyond the surface and to what's really going on, and to feel for them, to allow your heart to break for them, and then to do something about it. That's mercy. Mercy is to see someone, it is to feel for them, and it is to act on their behalf. It is compassion. Jesus says, you need to go understand what it means to see and to feel and to act because that's exactly what Jesus did with Matthew because the Pharisees had passed Matthew's office a hundred times, but they didn't see him. I mean, they saw him and disdained him as some of us often do with people that are not like us. They knew he was there and they saw him and looked down on him and felt superior to him, but they had never stopped to see him to realize that Matthew, a crook and a traitor, is an image bearer of God, created by God, loved by God, and precious in the sight of God. They had never seen him that way. But Jesus saw him, and Jesus went to him, and Jesus felt for him, and Jesus called him to himself. Jesus went after him in the tax collector's office. This is what Jesus did. He did it with prostitutes, he he, he did it with drunkards, He, he, he did it with those who were weak. Jesus was always going after this group of people and he did so that by choosing the weak he might confound the wise. What we discover is that the Pharisees had no category for this whatsoever. They had no category for someone who said they knew the Lord to be reclining with these kind of people. The Pharisees had missed mercy. They had never received it because they didn't think they needed it. And they have never given it because they don't think anybody else deserved it. The problem is this. If you miss mercy, you miss Jesus. If you miss mercy, you miss Jesus. And that's why we need Psalm 41. Psalm 41 is about the blessing of mercy. It is about both sides of mercy, both receiving it and giving it. And it is about how there is a blessing not only in receiving it, but a blessing in giving it and how these two things work together. How those who have received mercy are those who should be giving mercy. That there is no one who should be giving more mercy than those who have received mercy. It's about the blessing of mercy. So look at Psalm 41 as I read it for us. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. You'll notice a transition here in verse four. But as for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. And when he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. What a sad phrase. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friends in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you have delighted in me. My enemies will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. Now you certainly would have noticed as you read there a division between verses one through three and four through 11. And that's because in the first three verses, talks to us about the blessing of giving mercy. But then it helps us to understand that the reason that we give mercy is not only because there's a blessing to it, but because we have received mercy, which is the point of verses four through 11. But in all of this, it is speaking to the blessing of both giving and receiving mercy. So let's look what the Lord has to say to us about the blessing of mercy. The first thing I want you to see in verses one through three is this. You will be blessed by giving mercy. Write that down. You will be blessed by giving mercy. That's Psalm 41 verses one through three. Now the book of Psalms is divided up into five books. Now there's a lot to be said about why we have those five books. We don't need to go into that, but you will notice at the end of Psalm 41, going into Psalm 42, it says book two. And that's because this is the end of the first book of the Psalms. Now there's an interesting connection about the beginning and the ending of Psalms, book one. And that is they both begin with the word blessed. Remember Psalm one? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the unwise. The man who does what is right and he avoids the wicked. He chooses the path of righteousness. He does not choose the path of folly He is man like it's planted in a a tree and in his season he prospers, remember Psalm one? Well it's interesting, you come from Psalm one all the way to the end of of Psalm 41 where the second book begins and you realize it's bracketed with these words blessed. So a big part of the first book of Psalms is helping us to understand who it is that is the blessed one. Every one of those Psalms pointing us to Jesus Christ and how we can get in on the blessing of knowing Jesus Christ. So it's talking about the blessed one, Jesus, and how we too can be blessed. But what does it mean when Psalm one talks about the blessing that's on the one that walks with the Lord and the blessing that is on the one who considers the poor in Psalm 41? Well, blessing is really the joy and the satisfaction and the benefits of living in a right relationship with God. Blessing is the joy and the satisfaction and the benefits of walking in a right relationship with God. Meaning that when it comes to blessing, there's both an internal reality and an external reality. There's an internal part of blessing and an external part of blessing. Now, those of you who know what it's like to not walk with the Lord, and then have walked with the Lord, I believe, really, if you've walked with the Lord, not you've said a prayer or made a decision, but you know what it's like to walk in purity before the Lord, you will know that there is a difference, that there is a certain joy and satisfaction that comes in walking in a right relationship with the Lord. If you know that, say amen. It's true. And the reason is, is, because God has created us to be in a right relationship with him. And there is a certain joy and a satisfaction and a peace that comes to us when we walk in a right relationship with God. So when we come, become a believer, Ephesians 1 says, every blessing in the heavenly places is given to us. And now our responsibility as believers, as we walk in a right relationship with God and stay pure before the Lord, is to then experience more and more of that blessing. There is a real internal joy and satisfaction that comes with walking in the Lord. But listen, there are also external blessings that come with walking with the Lord. Now we always feel like we have to be careful here and we'll talk about this here in just a minute but the reality is this. All throughout the scriptures, particularly in the book of Proverbs, it tells us this, that those who walk in the way of foolishness, listen carefully, particularly those of you who are teenagers, college students, listen to this. The Bible is very clear. To walk outside of the way of wisdom, to walk in sin is always to bring more trouble upon yourself. So part of the reason you walk with Jesus is because you just believe by faith it's better, but part of the reason you walk with Jesus is because you believe every step outside of the way of wisdom brings more problems up on you. If I could just get students to understand this one principle, coming from a pastor who's done a ton of pastoral counseling, listen to me, and if you believe what I'm about to say, you're gonna say amen in just a minute. Sin makes everything more complicated. Everything. Everything is more complicated. Everything is more difficult. I could stand here all day and tell you story after story about how sin and walking outside of the way of wisdom makes everything more complicated because you weren't created to live that way. You were created to live in a right relationship with God. And there are things that even happen to us externally as we experience the benefits of walking in a right relationship with God that is blessing. Let me tell you another way to define blessing. Blessing is really a little taste of heaven on earth. What I mean is this, is that when we walk in a a place of rightness with God and we feel that joy and satisfaction and we experience a little bit of the goodness of God, you know what that is? Every time we do that, it's a little taste of heaven. It's a little taste of what we're gonna experience for all of eternity and what's supposed to happen is this. You get a little taste of heaven, you think I want more than that and you get more and you get more and you go harder after God and the more you do, God is preparing you for heaven. I've never understood those who don't like to walk with the Lord but they want to go to heaven. You won't enjoy it. Because what happens is is heaven is finding satisfaction in God fully and perfectly. So the blessing of God is, is finding a little taste of heaven as you walk with Jesus Christ. Here's what he says, this blessing, this little taste of heaven, this joy and satisfaction, even the external benefits of walking with the Lord. Listen, there is blessing for those, look at verse one, who consider the poor. Now, by consider the poor, do what I did. I put a little, a little mark there, and right next to it, I put the word mercy. Because to consider the poor is, is mercy. That's exactly what the... Author means. That word consider means to think carefully about something. It's to look beyond the surface, to think about something, and then to act on someone's behalf. That idea of of consider is to have a compassionate concern and care for someone else. So consider is not a fleeting thought. It's stopping, thinking, feeling, and then acting on behalf of someone. That's biblical concern. And then it says this, The blessing is for the one who considers the poor. Now, in your Bible, it may do what mine does. If you see the word poor right there, there's a little one beside it in mine, and it goes down and it says, or it could mean weak. So the authors uh, who have written this in Hebrew, then it's translated into English. The translators have to make a choice. Well, what's the best word to put here? It means multiple different things. Well, we'll choose the word poor. And I think that's good because it does include those who are poor, but it includes more than that. It also means those who are weak, those who are struggling, those who might be oppressed or overlooked, the marginalized. Think about this, just a few verses before this, at the end of Psalm 40, David, the king of Israel, who spends his entire latter life stockpiling gold and silver and precious jewels and timber so that his son Solomon can build the temple, says about himself, I am poor and needy. He's not talking about monetary poorness he still feels that he is poor and that he is needy. And so when it says blessed are those who consider the poor, it's talking about the weak, the powerless, the oppressed, the overlooked, the marginalized, meaning it could be the homeless person that you pass on the road. It could also be the lonely person sitting on your pew. There are the poor in this room. And do you know it's possible that the richest person in this room could be the poorest person in this room? It could be the one that appears to have everything together is the one that feels the most overwhelmed, the most oppressed, the most marginalized, the most ignored, and often what happens is this. Because they appear to have everything together, they are often the most ignored. That oftentimes we don't look at that person and say, how are you doing, and wait for an answer. We don't try to feel what is going on in their heart because we assume they're doing well. So when he says, blessed is the one who considers the poor, it is anyone who feels overlooked and oppressed and marginalized, and that may be you this morning. And the good news that we're going to see for you this morning is this, is that God sees you, and he feels, and he cares, and he's acting on your behalf. But he's how blessed is it to consider the poor, to take those that the world does not see. We see them. We may disdain them. We may hate them, we may walk right past them, but how blessed is it when we see them, when we think about them, when we feel for them and act on their behalf, there is a blessing for those who do this for the weak, the overlooked, and the marginalized. As I was studying this text this week, I couldn't help but to think about my dad. He was a pastor of a large church when I was growing up, and I was texting my two brothers this week, and we were talking about the way in which my father, and I think one of his greatest aspects of his pastoral ministry, just loved the poor, the weak, the marginalized. He had a bus ministry. And he, I can remember three specific places he sent the bus. And I confirmed this with my brother. First, he sent the bus to the Several Palsy Center. And those who were able to come, he would bring on Sunday morning. My brothers and I were talking this week. There was a man named Johnny who had Several Palsy. He would always sit right over here to the left of my father. And all throughout the sermon, he would shout amen. And we're convinced that my dad kept picking him up just because of that. Because sometimes you'll, you'll bust someone in who will say amen, right? I'm, I'm considering the same thing. If you guys don't pick it up a little bit. God would, God would, uh, my dad would bring them in and a whole busload of them from the several palsy centers. No other church was gonna bring them, you know why? Because it's complicated. My dad would bring a busload of men from the job corps those who had been in some kind of trouble with the law and they had been offered to come into this program where they would learn a skill or get a GED, so after being on drugs or having criminal records, they would uh, get into this program. My dad would pick a busload of them up and bring them to church. He had buses that would go to the poorest parts of the city and he would bring them to church and what I love about that is that's a lot like what heaven is gonna look like. I've told you before, the most surprising thing about heaven to us is gonna be who's there and who's not there. What Jesus was doing with Matthew is confounding the religious and the wise by saying you think that heaven's gonna be filled with the religious proud and I wanna say that heaven is going to be filled with humble sinners who have acknowledged their need for Jesus Christ and are willing to get on the bus and to come to be a part of what God is doing. He says how blessed is those who consider the poor. Now, this is a command really. It's a command to be aware, to see, to have mercy, to feel, to act on behalf of the poor. And then it says this, that there is a, a blessing that comes with this. There's a blessing, that's the point of that very first phrase, there's a blessing upon those who feel for those no one else is feeling for. I just can't help but to think, by the way, I just can't help but to think about those of you in school, every one of you in class, and you may be the one, you have some in your class who no one sees. No one feels, no one asks, no one goes out of their way to sit with them, to talk to them, and what I wanna say is there is a blessing for those who will leave their friend group and walk to the other side of the room and see someone that no one else has seen. Can you imagine the difficulty of going to school every day and feeling as if no one sees you? Going to work every day and feeling as if no one sees you. Coming to church and wondering if no one sees you, the world is filled with those people. And there is a blessing, listen, believe it, there is a blessing for the one who will go see them, feel for them, and do something for them. Now, this is where it gets a little complicated and we get to the second part of verse one. By the way, I am gonna speed it up here in just a minute. Look at these blessings. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him. Who's him? The one who considers the poor and keeps him alive. He's called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. Now, these are complicated passages because often you'll hear someone preach this and say, listen, if you consider the poor, you're never gonna be sick. If you consider the poor, you'll always be raised up from your sickbed, but that's not exactly what it's saying. These verses work a lot like the book of Proverbs, meaning this. These are paradigms and principles, not direct promises. Train up a child in the way that he should go and when he grows old, he will not depart from it. That's a principle, that's a paradigm, meaning you should, you should seek to raise up a child in the right way and a principle is this, is that those who are raised in the right way will, will go in the right way. Is that always the case? No. There are some who are raised the right way and go the wrong way, but these are principles calling us and motivating us to live in the right way. This is exactly what it is here, so I'm saying this. This is not saying That if you consider the poor, you're never gonna get sick. That's not what it says. What it does say is this. It says that without question, listen to me, without question, this is true. God blesses those who bless the needy, period. God blesses those who see those that no one else sees. If you want to experience the fullness of the blessing of God, you give yourself a little bit more to those who are in need. That's absolutely true. Couldn't think, help think as I was looking at this last night, Matthew 6, 4, where it says, you give and you give in secret and the God who sees in secret will reward you. I couldn't help but to think about Luke 6, 38 that says this give and it will be given to you. Measure that you use is the way it will be measured back to you. So here's the thing. All of us want to be seen. All of us want to receive some mercy, All of us are longing for some of that affirmation. And what this says is this, whether it be financial or mercy or grace or whatever, if you give a teaspoon of it, you'll get a teaspoon back. If you give a tablespoon, you'll get a tablespoon back. If you decide you're gonna go to school tomorrow or you're gonna go to work tomorrow and pour out a bucket of mercy, it says according to the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. This is absolutely true. And it's true of mercy. This is why it is so deep in my heart to plead with you to give faithfully to the Lord, even financially, because it's impossible to outgive God. I mean, it's absolutely impossible. We were talking about this after the first service. God has um, encouraged Andrew and I to increase our giving every single year by percentages. And the reason we do is we just, we just can't, it's unbelievable. The, the, the more you give, the more God gives back. And because I'm in a church that right now is about $150,000 over budget, I'm not looking for your money. I want you to experience the fullness of everything God can give you. So give more mercy and give more everything. Just be a giver because this is absolutely true. You say, well, what is the blessing? What is the reward? I don't know, but it's there. And walking by faith means I'm gonna believe that by showing mercy and giving this, that God will put a special blessing on my life. Listen to me. You will be blessed as you give mercy. Now we should be motivated by that blessing, no question. You should be motivated to give because God gives back. You should be motivated to give mercy because you want to receive mercy. By the way, if you're one of those that feels overlooked or marginalized, instead of feeling sorry for yourself, go give some mercy and see if God gives some mercy back. But that's not the only reason we do it. We do it because we also have been blessed by receiving mercy. Write that down, you will be blessed by giving mercy. The last thing you'll see is this, you have been blessed by receiving mercy. That's the point, verses four through 11. Now he says, as for me, I said, now it's important that that's in past tense because we've already walked through Psalm 38 and 39 and 40 and what David is doing here is reflecting upon what happened to him in those chapters. And he said this, I said, oh Lord, be gracious to me. Do it again, Uh, take a little equal sign and put mercy right there by verse four. Because when he says, be gracious to me, some of your translations, I think New King James, says mercy, because it really is the idea of mercy there. That word be gracious to me is, is the word mercy. So what David said is this, he said, I said, Lord, Show mercy to me, Lord, would you see me? Would you feel for me? Would you act on my behalf? And then he goes back and talks about all the stuff he experienced in Psalm 38 and 39. He said, God, I I had sin. My enemies were against me. They wanted my name to perish. They would come to see me and they would give empty words. Listen to how powerful this is. They would come to see me and they would say, oh, you know, I hope you get better. And they would then go out and they would whisper about me and imagine the worst for me. That's what he said he was going through. They would say, well, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He's, He's not gonna get any better. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. The verse that Jesus used at the last supper to talk about Judas. Even my friend who ate my bread has turned against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me. There it is again, put mercy beside that. You, Lord, be gracious, show me mercy. See me and feel me and rise up that I may repay them. Now look at what happens in verse 11. Verse 11 serves the exact purpose as chapter 40, verses 1 through 3. I put that there in my Bible, 41 through 3. Because in 41 through 3, it says this, Lord, I waited for you. You inclined, you know what that means, you saw me. You heard me, you drew me up from the pit of destruction, you set my feet up on a rock, you put a new song in my heart. This is exactly what it's your Lord, I waited, I called upon you, and what did you do? By this I know that you have delighted in me because my enemies will not shout and triumph over me, because you have upheld me because of my integrity. You have set me in your presence forever. I asked for mercy from the Lord, the Lord gave me mercy. He saved me, he delivered me up, he secured me, he sealed me and filled me with a new song. He put a spirit in me to give me a song of praise. This is exactly what he's saying. I waited, I trusted, I cried for mercy, and God gave it to me. If you're a believer this morning, you have trusted Jesus Christ alone as the payment for your sins, God has saved you, not because he felt sorry for you, not because he felt obligated to you, listen to me, because he delighted in you. Psalm 18 says this. Psalm 18, 19 says, he brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. If you could just get this in your heart, If in your heart you could just get the absolute assurance that the reason God has saved you is because he loves you and delights in you. In Zephaniah 3, he sings over you and shouts over you with songs of joy. Why did God save you? Because he likes you. Because he delights in you. Because you bring joy to his heart. He came after you and pursued you because he delights in you. David says, I know this. God has delighted in me because God has saved me. And then he just blesses the Lord. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. Why does he end by blessing the Lord? Because he's just reminded himself of all of the mercy that he has received. He is aware that God saw him when he said he was poor and needy, and God felt for him, and God acted on his behalf, so as the one who has received so much mercy, he then is aware that he must then give mercy, and there's a blessing in both. Boy, there's a blessing in receiving mercy, isn't there? How good it is to live a life in which God is at the center of our life. There's a blessing to receive mercy, and there's a blessing in giving mercy. I don't know about you, but I've always worried that I might come to the end of my life and, and discover that I'm a Pharisee. You ever had that thought? because the Pharisees didn't know they were Pharisees in the way we use it. They, they read the law, they studied the law, they believed that they were right, and every time they criticized Jesus, they used the Bible to criticize Jesus. And I'm just, I'm just telling you, being raised in a Christian home and having a lot of biblical education and spending so much time studying and thinking about the things of the Lord, I don't wanna be a Pharisee. Well, how 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 can we guarantee that we're not just Pharisees here? That you're not just going through the motions, coming to church because someone told you to come, or you're just doing the right thing. Well, how do you know? Well, one way you know is this. Because a Pharisee doesn't receive mercy because they don't think they need it. They think that because of their education, because of their schooling, because of their knowledge, they're okay with God. Let me tell you what a Pharisee will never do. A Pharisee will never get on his knees before a holy God and say, God, I'm poor, I'm needy, and I'm gonna go to hell if you don't help me. A Pharisee is not gonna say, God, I don't have enough to make it up on my own. I am in desperate need of you. God, would you save me? And then a Pharisee is never gonna give mercy because he's never received it. And what he's gonna think is that he deserves something good from God, but that group over there doesn't. We don't wanna be Pharisees. We wanna embrace the heart of Jesus. And this morning we do it by first receiving mercy. If you have never gotten on your knees before the Lord and acknowledged your sin and your desperation for God, if somehow you think that because of anything you've experienced, you're good enough to get to heaven, I wanna assure you, that hell will be filled with those who thought they were good enough to get to heaven. If you at any moment think that the reason you're gonna get there is because you've done anything to deserve it, then this morning I wanna plead with you to ask the Lord to save you, to trust his death as the payment for your sins and the only sufficient payment, and then experience the newness of life by receiving his death and resurrection. Call upon the name of the Lord. And then just begin to give mercy. Look for some people this week. You know, the world is filled with those who won't ever come to church because they think they're not good enough to come to church. And the way that they're going to know we love them is not because we do this every Sunday morning. It's because some of you are gonna go out there this week and actually see them and feel for them. They're never gonna come here unless first we see them and feel for them and act on their behalf and tell them that they are devalued by the God who created them. Some of you in school this week need to show mercy. Some of you in the workplace need to show mercy. An active looking for those who are overlooked so that they might experience some of the mercy you have received. God, help us to be a church filled with those who have received it and are giving it for his glory. Amen. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.